0: Lord, we come before you just grateful that we can sit under your word. And Father, it's something that we listen to every Sunday, and as we just take time today to ponder its meaning and its significance, I pray that we'll walk away just in wonder and awe at revelation given to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So when I teach my my newcomer class, which, by the way, will be the first two Sundays of November, if you're waiting for it. One of the things that I do is I I survey the doctrinal statement, and and I go through kind of an exercise to kind of show everyone that while all doctrine is significant and important, not all of it is of equal weight. And so I do something called a theological triage, where I talk about first-order, second-order, and third-order doctrines. Now, the third-order doctrines would be those doctrines that true brothers and sisters in Christ can have. They can even be in the same ministry, work closely with each other, and have a disagreement. Like, you might have a disagreement about the timing of the rapture. You're mid-trib, you're post-trib, I'm pre-trib. You know, we could still work together, right? In the big picture, it's not that significant. You go another level up, you have second-order doctrines. Those would be doctrines where I can affirm you as a brother and sister in Christ, but it'd be very difficult for me to go to your church. For instance, uh, maybe charismatic issues, women in ministry, uh, baptism, believer's baptism versus infant baptism. You still affirm them as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But the differences are probably too great to work closely with each other. And then you have first order doctrines. These are doctrines that you must affirm to be a Christian and you cannot deny and still claim to be a Christian, right? You can't deny the Trinity and claim to be a Christian. You need to affirm the reality of sin, the reality of Jesus Christ, his death, burial and resurrection, the atonement, the necessity of faith and repentance, the reality of judgment. And then I throw this into the authority of scripture. You must believe in the authority of Scripture. And some people might push back on that and say, well, is the authority of Scripture on the same level as the Gospel? And the question is, how do you even know about the Gospel without the Scriptures? How do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? How do you know that you have sinned? How do you know about what is a sin apart from the Scriptures? And and essentially, if the scriptures are not calling the shots, right? If the scriptures are not defining the faith, then the question is, what is? Who is? And traditionally, in historic Christianity, there have been two great battle lines. One is on the reality of the resurrection. That has been under satanic assault for a long, long, long time. The other one is on It's about the reliability, reality, and the authority of Scripture. Satan wants to undermine the authority of Scripture. He wants you to lose your faith in Scripture, which is really kind of a pit stop to losing your faith in Jesus and God, at least the God of the Bible. And there's all kinds of attacks. The Bible contradicts itself. It can't be trusted. The the church needs to interpret the scripture for you. You can't understand what it really says. You can't understand the scriptures. What what you need is you need to have a vision from God, some sort of divine revelation through this prophet, not through what you read in scripture. Scriptures are for children. The scripture needs updating. Right? It's a morally compromised book that needs to be sifted, and we need to determine and kind of look at where Scripture is pointing, but we're not bound by the Scriptures. And those who hold a high view of Scripture are committing the sin of bibliolatry. By the way, if somebody accuses you of committing bibliolatry, it's because they're committing idolatry. Just a fact. Because what they want to do is get you to lose your faith in the Scriptures so that you can accept a counterfeit. So you look at the issue of, let's say, homosexuality in, uh, in the church, and certain churches are affirming it. It's not really an issue of, of sexual behavior, like we're some sort of bigots who just want to stop people from living the life they way they want to live. It's really about the authority of Scripture. If the Bible says something is wrong clearly, then it's wrong. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. As I mentioned, historically, Satan has always attacked the scriptures. And, and he has met with a fair amount of uh, success. Many churches nationally have capitulated. German higher criticism, scholasticism, whatever, has caused people to lose their faith in scripture. And denominations fall, churches fall, pastors fall. Christians fall away. In the time of the writing of 2 Timothy, there were some questionings about Scripture. Where many people weren't submitting to the Scripture, they were examining extra-biblical literature. They were looking at speculations, visions, and dreams. And as Paul was about to leave the scene, right, he has a self-awareness that his time is coming to an end. And as he's imparting his final message to his protege, Timothy, he points Timothy to the Scriptures. We read about this last week, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. But as for you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. right? The scriptures opened the eyes of Timothy so that he could understand salvation. It gave him the gospel, gave him the ability to understand what Jesus did on the cross and led him to be born again. The miracle of regeneration was mediated through the scriptures so that when Paul taught the rest of the story, his understanding of the Old Testament was ignited. Right? The scriptures are sufficient for salvation. And now as Timothy is going to go at it alone, so to speak, without the oversight of Paul, Paul makes it very clear that you are not alone. The scriptures which wisened you up for salvation, they are sufficient for the ministry you're about to engage in. And as we shall read, he gives us probably the most significant passage in all of the Bible about The Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I would imagine that most of us have just always grew up assuming that the Bible is the Word of God. What was the first song you all learned? Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And then, if you're raised in a church-going family, you probably went to vacation school. That's right. At Flint Hills Bible Church, we like to say the Bible is our middle name. right? So, so there are assumptions that the Scripture is true. And, and that's a good assumption. It's a biblical assumption. But should your faith ever be assaulted and Satan were to go on the attack, and attack your confidence in scripture, it is good to know why you believe what you believe. It's good to have a high view of scripture grounded in the right truths. And that is what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look at the authority of scripture from this passage, the application of scripture, and then I wanna spend some time on the apologetic for scripture. And my goal, what I've been praying for you all today, is that you walk away with a high view of Scripture. Now, when we talk about a high view of Scripture, it's related to a high view of God, right? That's a buzzword you hear quite a bit at our church, high view of God, not buzzword, buzz phrase. But a high view of God means that God is above us, right? He's up here, we are down here. We assume a posture of submission to Him. We don't come to God on our terms we come to God on his terms and if we have a problem with God well it's your problem it's not his and so if you have a high view of God where you see him as supreme majestic the authority he is above you then how do you submit to his will how do you come to him on his terms and as we'll see his terms are laid out in Scripture And if you have a hard time with scripture, it's because you have a hard time with God. To have a high view of scripture means that we take the posture where we do not stand above the Bible but the Bible stands above us. We don't scrutinize the Bible to see if it's true. The Bible scrutinizes us to see if we have embraced the truth. That is where I'm going with a high view of scripture. Now, there's going to be a little bit more red meat in this message, so be prepared. But it is important. If you're going to have a robust defense of Scripture, you need to know what it teaches. And it teaches that Scripture is the authority. Look at verse uh, 16. This is a profound phrase. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this is loaded with meaning. And before I get to how it all comes together, there's a couple of questions we need to ask. The first one is what's meant by all scripture? What is meant by all scripture? Well, at a minimum, at a minimum, right, in the context Paul is talking about, how you've learned about the sacred writings from childhood, that would mean at least the Old Testament. Paul was raised by a Jewish grandmother and mother. They taught him the scriptures because that's what they were commanded to do. He clearly had an understanding that the Old Testament was scripture. But he also had an understanding that the reach of scripture extended beyond the Old Testament. One of, uh, I think, the most fascinating verses in Paul is in 1 Timothy 5.18. Paul says, for Scripture says, okay, he's quoting Scripture, the authoritative Scripture, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is in the context of paying pastors. Now that phrase, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, comes from Deuteronomy 25.4, right? Scripture, Old Testament passage. But did you know that phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, is not found in any passage in the Old Testament? But when Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, sends out his 72 on this training mission, and he instructs them, you don't need to worry about taking a money bag or anything. Uh, Those who are touched by your ministry should provide for you because the laborer, laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul is quoting the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 verse 7 and he calls it Scripture. He calls it Scripture. Paul was aware that Scripture was still being written. In fact, at the end of 2 Peter, Peter calls Paul's writings Scripture. Paul would write a letter and tell people, and bind people, bind their consciences with apostolic authority, and then he would say, oh yeah, make sure this church reads my letter too. He understood that Scripture was still being written, and so it would be a mistake to say that this only applies to the Old Testament. What Paul is making a comment about is the nature of Scripture, all Scripture, all that is Scripture is breathed out by God, which is our second question. What does he mean by God breathed? Some of your translations might say inspired. God breathed, inspired. Well, breath and spirit are, are synonyms in the Hebrew, right? When God breathed into Adam, he animated him. He gave him life. He gave him a spirit, so to speak. So when he's talking about all scripture is God breathed or inspired, he doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible is an inspiring book, right? I read the Bible and it just inspired me to become a better man. I mean, you can read other things that might inspire you to be better men, right? I watched Gladiator and it just inspired me. That's not the same thing. For scripture to be inspired, it means it speaks on behalf of God. Like when we breathe, right? When, when you look at my words to you are modulated breath. I exhale, and then my body modulates it to form speech. And so when he's talking about the breath of God, it is God's speech. It's coming from the mouth of God. And, and he's just echoing what we read in the Old Testament, where 4,000 times you read phrases like, the Lord spoke, the Lord commanded, or thus saith the Lord, or the Lord said. That the Bible, that that scripture, all that is scripture comes from the mouth of God. Now, I want to contour that a little bit because there is some question, okay, so how did God, when he spoke, make, make sure that it was written down in the scriptures? Now, there are some rare occasions where God would say something and Jeremiah would just say okay and just write it down. But normally there was a different process where God was the author, the parchment scripture was a result. But he used different pens or styluses. Another fascinating passage that deals with scripture is found in 2 Peter 1:20 20 through 21 where Peter says this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you have a prophet uttering the words of God. They are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that word carried along is also used in in the book of Acts. Uh, describing how Paul's ship was being carried along. The wind was blowing him along. You, you see, that ship in Acts went to the exact destination that God intended. He used his, the wind to carry it along. And in the same way, Scripture, it uses different human beings, different ships, some have big sails, some have smaller sails, some have a big hull, hole, big hull, hole, H-U-L-L, I'm not sure if I saying that right, versus small ones or rudders. Do you know what I'm saying? Different ships have different abilities, different speeds, but God is able to carry them along to the exact destination. And so God is able to use men with different language abilities who speak different languages, who are able to use words with various uh, degrees of artistry, But in the end, God is able to say exactly what he wants to have said through the scripture. And that is why you have so many authors and so many different styles, but it's really the same message because the spirit is driving those men, and in some cases women, along. So that is what it means for it to be God-breathed. Scripture comes from the mouth of God all of it that is mediated perfectly through the Holy Spirit working through men. So that we can know that when the scripture speaks, God speaks. Now there's a couple of follow-up questions I I want to address. Is this the only revelation that we have from God? By revelation, something that reveals God? And and the answer is no. There are other forms of revelation. We read about it in Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Paul is defending the righteousness of God and condemning people who routinely reject him. And even if they've never heard of Jesus, they can look around at creation, look at the sunsets, the design, you look at... Uh, just the intricacy of the human body or the animal body or even plant life and conclude that there is a God who is great and powerful. And, and this is not enough revelation, so to speak, that they can be saved, but enough to know that there is a creator, he is powerful, and you are rejecting him. Right? That is general revelation. Okay. Now that is in contrast to what we call special revelation or specific revelation. Later on in the book of Romans, as Paul's talking about how the gospel must be preached, he says in Romans 10:14 through 15, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And the answer is you can't. For somebody to be saved, they must hear the gospel. They must hear the good news that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was raised again. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And so there's this general revelation where everyone gets a heaping dose of the authority and power of God through creation, but they must hear the specific testimony of written revelation, which is what we have here through the scriptures. Okay, that's special revelation. Now here's another question. Does the Bible contain all the special revelation ever given? The answer is no. John twenty-one twenty-five. Now, these are many other things that Jesus did. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there are other bits of revelation. Every time Jesus spoke, and I think one of the great things about heaven, by the way, is like, Jesus, can you tell us some of the things that weren't written down in the Bible? Wouldn't that be great? But John makes it very clear that he's given you enough for you to know that he is the Son of God. So the Bible is authoritative, and, and yes, there are some other sources of special revelation that are not known and should not be submitted to, by the way. That's another sermon for another topic. But what we have right now in the book of the Bible... Is enough to fulfill its intended application, which we'll see in the rest of the passage. Okay? Second point application of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is saying, You, Timothy, you have enough Scripture. You have everything you need to go about this wonderful work which you have been called to. I think one of the clearest statements of Paul's purpose for his ministry is found in Colossians 128. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may prevent, present everyone complete in Christ. Right? His mission is my mission for my life and my mission for your life, Right? I want you all to be complete in Christ. To be shaped into the image of His Son. And the Scriptures are sufficient for that. You see, God doesn't necessarily want us to just recognize the Bible as authoritative. He wants the Bible to be active in the shaping and development of our our lives. Now, for centuries... The Bible was regarded as the authority, but it was never applied. The reason why is nobody could understand it except for some select scholars. Jerome, who I mentioned a couple sermons ago, decided that he wanted the Bible to be understood by the masses, and so he translated it into Latin. And that Latin translation was called the Vulgate, was adopted by the Roman Catholic Church as the official translation And even though languages changed and morphed and nobody could understand it except for some scholars, even though Jerome's original intention was to bring the Bible to the masses, it was very clear that it was shrouded, it was obscured, it was recognized as the authority and the church would say, trust us. We know what it says. And a man by the name of William Tyndale, who honestly was probably the greatest linguist who ever lived. What he was able to do with language was, was unheard of. It still is. He's probably one of the great... Um, you look at Shakespeare and William Tyndale, same intellectual level with what they were able to do with language. And he had a passion for the scriptures. He was able to understand Greek and Latin, even Hebrew. He knew what it meant. And he was getting into a debate with a, a scholar who was contending and defending the uh, the uh, concealment of the scriptures, there you go. Because it was illegal to translate the Bible into the common language. And the scholar said, you know what, we're better off with ignorance of God's law than the Pope's law. The Pope's law is what really counts. And this is what he said in response. He said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. He wanted plowboys to know more than this scholar. He understood the value of scriptures and he would give his life translating uh, the Bible and he would be martyred for that act because he understood that, that scripture is not just meant to be a theoretical authority but an applied authority. That God has given God's words to his people to shape them. And that is exactly what Paul calls Timothy to do, right? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, right? It is extraordinarily useful for the task at hand. And what is it supposed to do? How is it supposed to profit you? Well, it's profitable to help you do the following, Timothy, for teaching for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Now, this is an interesting pairing. You have two sets. You have for teaching and for reproof, and then you have for correction for training in righteousness. And as we're going to see, each of these two concepts deal with a different aspect. The first one is for teaching and for reproof. This pairing of words is also seen in in Titus, where Paul tells Titus to appoint elders, and then he gives them the job description. That he, this elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, the teaching, right, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He's supposed to teach sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So you have the teaching of sound doctrine as well as reproving those who contradict it. So God has given us enough of the word to define and defend sound doctrine. And a lot of times people think, you know, if you just kind of quibble about words and stuff like that, does it really matter if you get doctrine exactly right? Well, it mattered to Paul. Galatians 1.8, as he's taking on Judaizers who are corrupting the faith, he says this, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If you get this part of the gospel wrong, you are damned. And there's all kinds of false gospels out there. Some people teach that, you know what, everyone gets to heaven eventually. You know, God's mercy is as vast as an ocean. You know, his wrath is a lake of fire. His love is an ocean. Everybody gets there eventually. It's called universalism. But what does God's word say? What does Jesus say? Well, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 24, 41, 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If Jesus didn't believe in hell, why does he threaten people with it? Or some people would say, You know what? The gospel's good, it's helpful, but it's not enough. You need more than faith. You might need a a sacrament. And and you know what? You probably need someone to administer the sacrament. You need a mediator, uh, the church. But what does the Bible say? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. And, And do you need a priest? 1 Timothy 2, 5. You do. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and that man is Christ Jesus. You do need a priest, and his name is Jesus, and that's all the priest you need. Some people will say, you know what? When you just look at the Bible, there is nothing that says that you can't honor and worship God in a loving, monogamous, homosexual relationship. Right? That's one of the big ones that's, that's emerging. And yet the Bible says, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, God's providence, Scott read it this morning, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you tell someone in a same-sex relationship that God's okay with that, you're giving them a helping, keeping, helping dose of heresy. You're condemning them with the message by telling them peace when there is no peace. Scripture corrects all these doctrinal aberrations. It is sufficient for teaching and for reproof in your doctrine, but also for correction and training in righteousness. Now the word correction speaks of cutting straight, basically saying scripture will straighten you out. It'll straighten you out. And not just straighten you out, it will train you, right? When you talk about training children, it's teaching them to do the same thing over and over again so that they're trained and they, they accept the truth that you are giving them in practice. And so this is talking about the scripture's ability to shape your conduct so that you can live out the life-changing liberating truth of the gospel because remember the gospel doesn't just liberate you from hell it liberates you from sin and so let's say you are struggling with the the sin of anxiety you can't think straight you're just overwhelmed by the burden of all these concerns in life you're getting an ulcer what does the bible say to that Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Struggle with bitterness? I mean, who doesn't, right? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And the list goes on. The Bible speaks to your conduct. It can help you live a life that is honoring to the Lord as we see that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, man of God, that's, that's like a high title. You have David. He was a man of God. Elijah, he was a man of God. Moses, he was a man of God. They were servants of God used by the Lord to shape and guide and lead people into righteousness. And God spoke to them directly. And you think, man, wouldn't it be great if God just spoke to me? Well, he does through the scriptures. You see, the scriptures in the hands of a man of God, any Christian leader, it's, for a pastor to not use the Bible is like a surgeon deciding not to use a scalpel or an engineer not using a calculator? I mean, would you want to go across a bridge that an engineer built, calculator free? Or like a computer programmer, not using a computer? A preacher without a Bible, a pastor without a Bible, a leader without the Bible, is just giving you advice. It's just giving you advice. See, Paul, it doesn't say scriptures plus something else is adequate, but it is sufficient. Now, some people might push back, well, the scripture doesn't tell you how to perform an appendectomy. Scripture doesn't tell you how to change the transmission on a car. Okay, it doesn't. But it tells you how to honor God as you change the transmission in the car. It tells you how to honor God as you perform the appendectomy. It tells you how to live a righteous Life, how to please God in every area of life. And isn't that what matters? You see, and what Paul is saying is that the scriptures are the authority, and the Bible testifies to this elsewhere. Deuteronomy 8:3 The man of God does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Sounds familiar? Because Jesus quoted this scripture when he took on Satan. Psalm 19:7 through 10. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Bible teaches over and over again that if you want to know God, you find him in the scriptures. It communicates the very voice of God. And if you want to have a high view of God, lift him up and understand what he says and his plan for your life, you look in the scriptures. Now Satan knows this and he has attacked it. He wants you to not place your faith in the scriptures, or really the God of the scriptures. He wants to minimize it and diminish it. So how do you push back against some of the, the classic objections against the scripture? And this is kind of my my next point, right? The apologetic for scripture, this is the bonus point not necessarily found in the text. An apologetic is to make a defense especially against accusations. And when I'm asked, why do I believe in the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures? My first answer surprises people because the Bible says so. But wait a second, Pastor Dave, isn't that circular reasoning? Eh, maybe. But if I were to say, I believe in the authority of scripture because it's reasonable, then what's my highest authority? Reason. If I were to say, I believe in the scriptures because God told me in a vision that the scriptures are true, then it's my vision and my interpretation of the vision. If I were to say, I believe in the scripture because the church told me so, then what's my highest authority? The church. And all of these can go wrong, right? If if reason is a reason why I believe in the authority of the scripture, what happens when I encounter something like the Trinity? Or if my visions told me that the scriptures were true, what happens when... Somebody gets a vision that says it's okay to practice plural marriage, like Joseph Smith. But if I were to say, well, it's a church that tells me the scripture is authoritative. Well, what happens when there's a clear contradiction between the church's teaching and the scripture's teaching? Ultimately, scriptures testify to their own authority as to the ultimate authority. Uh, Secondly, Often when I talk to people who don't believe the Bible or they tell me they they can't believe in God because of lack of evidence or lack of science, I, I do a little exercise before I actually get into defending the faith. I ask the question, if in the next five minutes I can prove without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is real, he died on the cross, was raised from the dead, taken up to heaven, that you must believe in him to have eternal life and to be in heaven forever, otherwise you'll go to hell. If I can prove that in the next five minutes, will you convert at the end of the five minutes? And you can imagine what the answer is. Every single person says no. I said, well, here's the problem. It's not that you can't believe in the Bible. It's that you don't want to. Do you know Jesus actually makes this same argument? He had some opponents who were questioning his teaching, and he lays down the following challenge in John 7, 16 through 17. My teaching is not mine, but it is, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. Right? If you want to know if the Bible is the word of God, then seek earnestly to do it. Make sure that your desire for sin is not standing in the way. So if that is your subtle disposition, right, and you are saying, okay, I am willing to listen to what the Bible says about itself and I'm willing to do what it says. Now, now reassure me that this really is the Word of God. How, How do I answer some of these objections? Well, I'll take them one by one. First objection is we don't have the original Bible. It's been handed down over the years. How do we know that the Bible that we have right now is the true Bible? Now, when I... Ha, uh, teach my how to study the Bible class. I, I lead the class through a real interesting exercise. I'll have them all get pens and paper and I will read a lengthy passage from the King James from the book of Ezekiel. I won't tell you which one it is because I don't want you studying ahead. And everyone will write it down and I'm going fast and you know people's hands are cramping. You know, There's always a few women there who just like they're, they're determined to get every single word. Okay, so we have a class of 20 people, sometimes 10 people, sometimes four people, and we compare notes, and I get up on the, on the whiteboard and I, I write things down, okay? Okay, what's the first word, second word, third word, how do you spell that? You know what's really fascinating? Every single class has been able to faithfully reconstruct it with a few antiquated spellings throwing them off. They kind of know how the whole system works. Oh, I didn't catch that. Okay, I misheard that. That's something called textual criticism. It's the, the science of comparing manuscripts to kind of deduce what the original authors meant. Now, in ancient history, the, the second most attested um, writing is Homer's Iliad. There's 687 manuscripts of that. Do you know how many our manuscripts have of the Bible, last count? 24,000. Scholars estimate that they are able to accurately reconstruct reconstruct 98% of the New Testament. And the parts that they know are not part of the New Testament are very clear, they're the weird sections. Like the end of Matthew where it talks about handling snakes, they're pretty sure that's not part of the original Bible, which is kind of a relief to be honest. The second objection is that, doesn't the Bible contradict itself? I mean, how many times have you heard that? Y'all just say, well, where do you think it contradicts itself? Well, a lot of times a little patience and research is all you need. For instance, in one famous contradiction is Matthew 27, five. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. So how did Judas die? He hung himself. Acts 119. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and then he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. How did he die there? I fell off a cliff. Contradiction. Hanging. throw himself off a cliff. How do you resolve it? Well, recently there's been some, um, some research where they found out that the word falling headlong can also be translated swelling. Now, what happens when you have a body in the hot Mediterranean sun that's just, let's say, hanging from a tree? Yeah. Could have happened to a nicer person, right? (laughs) Was the sound effect really necessary? (laughs) I mean, when a corpse bursts open, what do you think it sounds like, right? Sometimes a little patience and research is all you need. Objection three, what about other books of Revelation like the Quran or the Book of Mormon? Well, one, the Book of Mormon and the Quran were written by one author, not the diversity of authors that we have in the Bible. Two, a bunch of contradictions in those books and historical inaccuracies. Three, the Bible has fulfilled prophecy, which is incredible. I mean, the Book of Daniel, scholars believe that the Book of Daniel had to be written maybe around 150 A.D. because it's prophecies about The Maccabean Revolt and Antiochus of Epiphanes was was so precise that they concluded that it was written afterwards because there's no way it could have been written before. And I looked into this this week. Its inclusion in the Greek translation of the Bible that was called the Septuagint, the fact that there's a manuscript in the Dead Sea Scrolls that was, you know, those people actually went into hiding before the Maccabean Revolt shows that it was accepted as scripture long before that happened. In Daniel chapter 11, there's a famous prophecy of the 69 weeks between the reconstruction of Jerusalem and the cutting off of the Messiah. And they've done some research and they found out that on March 5th, 44 B.C., Artaxerxes Xerxes Longimanus issued a decree giving the Jews permission to rebuild the city. And then, 483 years later, making some adjustments for the Gregorian calendar, leap year and those things, they calculated that 483 years from that date is April 3rd, 33 AD, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem. I mean, sounds pretty accurate to me, doesn't it? And the Bible's full of these. I mean, all this to say, there's more where that came from. I mean, the Bible is a holy book. It testifies to its own authority. And to have a high view of Scripture is to see it as supreme in your life. And that means you place yourself under the Bible. I mean, some people will, I'll submit to the Bible as a devotional book, and I'll let the Lord speak to me through the you through the pages of scripture but he's not really speaking to them through the pages of scripture but through their own biased understanding they're not trying to understand the text for what it says other people will say i submit to the bible but when it questions my morality and it tells me to stay in a difficult marriage and even though i have no biblical reason for leaving i'm going to get out that is not submitting to its authority people might pillory the bible say it's full of mistakes Others might replace the Bible with visions from God. Others will read their own theology into the Bible instead of submitting to the plain text for what it says. But a high view of Scripture means that we don't stand over the Bible and put our truth into it. We don't bend it to our will. We bend our will to the Bibles. And if you want to understand God, if you want to know God, you look no further than the revelation of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon says it well. I'll conclude with this. If you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it comes to pass, you can only discover it by his word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege that you've given us of knowing your word We think about how you use men to write down your word and how in your providence you collected the manuscript so that we can read it for ourselves, that you've given us the ability to read and even have abundant copies of the Bible in our hands. And Lord, we pray that we won't just hold the Bible for show, but that we will seek to really know you by knowing the word well. Lord, give us a profound appreciation for your scriptures. Give us a high view of scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen.